If you have your Bibles, turn them with me, please, to Genesis chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, just uh, slip up your hand, and uh, one will be provided for you. We have plenty, so don't be shy. Genesis chapter 2. We're going to start at verse 18 and read through the end of the chapter. Uh, This is not allegory, as some may say about these early chapters in Genesis. This is not fiction or metaphor or fantasy. This is history that we're reading. We're about to read something, and it's told accurately, the exact way it happened. And it happened this way for a reason. Moses writes, under the inspiration of the Spirit, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. So out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on the man. And while he slept took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you created us for community. And you created community amongst people, not as an end unto itself, but all of these communities that exist amongst people on this planet, marriage or otherwise, are meant to point to something more significant. They're meant to show us something about you, about Christ, about the gospel. Father, I pray that you'd be with Pastor Steve as he preaches the word. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Deemer. The Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I don't know if you caught it a few weeks back, there was, um, actually I think it was a few months now, there was a Time Magazine article, had a cover story and it showed an image of like a wedding cake and it talked about the institution of marriage and their thought and they brought out some statistics that the institution of marriage is something that is certainly passing away and their belief that it will eventually disappear. This looked at several different changes and Uh, The way the nature of marriage and the shape of marriage has been changed in Western culture. And they brought out some interesting statistics. Did you know that in 1960, nearly 70% of American adults were married? Now, that's only about half. Eight times as many children are born out of wedlock now than they were in 1960. Back then, two-thirds of 20-somethings were married... In 2008, just 26% of 20-somethings were married. And for the first time in history of our nation, the majority of adult women in the United States of America are unmarried. And so based upon these statistics, uh, those in Time Magazine came to the conclusion that marriage, whatever it might be, and they couldn't really define it real well, whether it be social, spiritual, or symbolic, was something that's just not as necessary as it used to be. And that was their conclusion. Marriage is just not something as necessary as it used to be. We are in the middle of a series called the Jesus Tribe. Now, you may say, well, the Jesus Tribe, marriage, what are you talking about? Well, basically, we're going through the Bible to look to have a biblical theological framework for all relationships. Every relationship, every human relationship we have, whether it be relationships between parents and children, husband, wife, relationships within the community, relationships within the body of Christ, within the church, uh, relationships with strangers, uh, 
relationships. We are created to be relational beings. That's part of our, we are social creatures by nature. And so we're, we're looking at this series on relationships, and we're calling it the Jesus tribe because ultimately, as Deemer said in his prayer, all relationships point back to God and point to the fact that we've been created for, commu- for community for a reason, and that is to be part of God's community, the people of God, the tribe of Jesus. And Jesus is redeeming a people. He is, he is calling out a people to himself, the church, and at the end of the age, they will be with him as the bride of Christ, and the Jesus tribe will be complete. And so we're going through this series. We don't know how long it's going to take, to be honest with you. If you're wondering how long this series is going to take, we don't know. We're just going to kind of go with the way the Holy Spirit leads on this. But we've broken away from a series in Acts, which I'm thoroughly enjoying, and I can't wait to get back to Acts. But So we here at Harvest preach verse by verse through the Bible, and occasionally we'll break away for a topical series like this one here today. Now let's ponder that verse that I read to start off with. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. Think about that verse for a little bit here, okay? Everything in creation thus far has been good. If you go to Genesis chapter 1, every time God creates something, he says, and it was good, and it was good, and it was good, and it was good. The first time we ever read of anything not being good, it's right here. And Moses is using the same formula of words. He wants us to get the point here. He's trying to contrast the everything is good phrases from chapter 1 with this right here when he says, it is not good. So we get to this. This is happening on day 6 of creation. And God says something is not good. And honestly, that in and of itself is quite stunning. For God to at some point during creation say, something isn't good. What's even more stunning, and I alluded to this a couple of weeks ago, what's even more stunning is that Adam isn't actually alone. He has who? He has God. He has God. And if these words, that it's not good that man should be alone, if it had not come from God's mouth himself, this would be blasphemy. This would be blasphemy to say that Adam... Is not, it's not good that he's alone, that he's, it's not sufficient that he just has God. And so we have to consider that. We have to ponder that. And, and really, it should kind of blow our mind. If you are a Christian and if you are a God-centered Christian where you believe that Jesus Christ is your treasure and you believe in verses like uh, where Jesus tells the parable of the man who sold everything he had and went and bought a field that had a treasure buried in it and he compared that to kingdom of God, that your relationship with God is more important than any other relationship in the world and God is to be your treasure, your passion, your center, your focus, then you get to this and you see that God says it's not good that Adam is alone and you begin to think, wait a second, why is it not good? So let's ask that question. Why is it not good? Why has God declared that it's not good that man should be alone? Was Adam Lonely? Let's consider that. Maybe he's just lonely. Okay? Well, we haven't heard Adam complain. Adam's not the one who said, Hey, Lord, it's not good for me to be alone. It's not at all. Adam hadn't said a word. Matter of fact, the very first words Adam speaks, at least that we have recorded in Scripture, are when he sees the woman. But right now, he hasn't said anything. Ross is laughing back there. He hasn't said anything at this point. So... And that's my dog barking in the background. If you hear a dog in the background barking, that's my dog. We're going to the park after the service. She's in my office. Please don't freak out. I'm not speaking in dog tongues or something. So Adam's not, he hasn't said he's lonely. Maybe for his health and sanity. Because we know, statistics have shown that people who are loners, people who don't have good companionship, are much less healthy. Matter of fact, they die at a, at a rate of about 3.7 years earlier than someone who actually has healthy relationships. And I mentioned uh, you know, a few, few weeks ago that uh, one of the most feared punishments in the whole penal system is solitary confinement. So it's definitely not healthy, but there's been no allusion to that. That, that may be part of the case here, but it's not at the root. Does, does Adam need some self-esteem boosting? I doubt it. Does he need a soulmate? Is that the thing here? He needs a soulmate, and that's why it's not good that he's alone? Well, there, there may be some case there, but that's still not the root of it. It's not like Adam is, kids, have you seen Wally, right? 
and he's all alone, you know, just doing the same thing over and over and over. And then Eve, by the way, her name's Eve in the movie, right? Shows up and, oh, now he's got his soulmate. That's not the main reason. Um, did he just need a friend, a companion? Yes, he did, but that's not the root of the answer either. Does he need someone to balance him out? Does he need someone to, you know, to insist that he asks God for directions when he's trying to walk to the other side of the garden? That might be the case, but that's not the root of it either. So what's the answer? Well, the answer is in Genesis 1, 26 and 27. So rewind your Bible one chapter and look at these words. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So the answer is that man is created in the image of God. Man is to display God. Man is to image God. He is to show forth the glory and the greatness of God. And man cannot do this if he is without relationship, without a suitable partner or companion. That's why we started this whole series last week with the Trinity. You know, I had um, someone ask me after the service, I, you know, I understand, I love the sermon on the Trinity, but why did we start there? We started there because the Trinity is the basis for all relationships. So we looked at the relationship within the Godhead, the communal nature of God, the perfect relationship within the Godhead, perfect community, perfect love, perfect fellowship, perfect submission, perfect relationship, yet there's also distinction. Three persons, yet one God. Eternally three persons. God has always been Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so we looked at that truth. And so the reason that it's not good that man be alone is that God, man does not fully image God if he's not in relationship as well. If man is not in relationship, if there's not that specifically in this passage a relationship between a husband and wife, man is not fully imaging God the way he was created to. So what Genesis chapter 2 really is, it's like taking a magnifying glass or a microscope, going to Genesis chapter 1, to, to Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, and then putting a microscope over it and zooming in so we see a little bit more of the detail. So what we get now is the detail of Genesis 2 that explains Genesis 1, 27 and 26 and 27. So let's go dig into this passage today. Let's let God's magnifying glass take us down and look at this. Man, as I mentioned, is created to be in the image of God. It's not good that Adam's alone because he's not fully imaging God when he's alone, when he's not in relationship. I read an article this week about the way some of Picasso's lost artwork has been identified as his. You may not be aware of this or not, but a lot of artists in the early 20th century would actually take their fingerprints and put a fingerprint into the paint. So their, their mark was on that masterpiece. Their mark was on that painting. And so when someone brings a Picasso and says, hey, look, here's a lost art piece from Picasso. Give me a few million dollars. You can go take a magnifying glass and find that fingerprint. If it's not there, then it's not a Picasso. And so for us people, humans, the fingerprint of God is upon us because we're created in his image and we're created for significant relationship. We're created for the type of relationship mentioned in Genesis chapter 2. So how does, my question for today is simply this. All right, I'm going to bring up a question at the top of the screen there. How does marriage image God? I'm going to give us four, no, five points. How does marriage image God? And the first point is this, through equality. Through equality. As Deemer discussed last week, the persons of the Godhead are equal. They are distinct, but they are equal. They are the same substance, the same infinite value, the same excellence, the same holiness, the same magnificence, the same glory. And man and woman are created in the image of God. And according to Genesis 1.27, both male and female are created in the image of God. Therefore, in order to reflect God, to reflect the Trinity, we must understand that man and woman are created with equality. 
Genesis 1, 26 establishes their equality. Genesis 2 reinforces it, but it doesn't leave us there. It doesn't just leave us with this concept of equality because it brings us farther than that and takes us to a beautiful and magnificent distinction between man and woman that also brings glory to God. But man and woman, as far as ontological value before God, are equal. Both man and, God, and woman are made in the image of God. Equal in personhood, equal in value, equal in dignity. Adam reinforces that equality when he says in verse 23, This is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. These words establish his understanding that this new person, this woman that God has given him as his equal, is equal to him in personhood. Up to this point, I've said nothing controversial. And the whole world would love the message that I've just uh, brought to this point. And I think if, uh, if we wanted to just uh, stop the message right now and go out of here, we could take this CD or this, uh, and replay it and everyone would be fine with this message. But it doesn't stop there because we're not fully imaging God if we stop right there. The world loves to talk about men and women being created equal, and we are. And we love to image God when it comes to equality. But the Godhead is much more complex than that. So not surprisingly, us being imagers of God is much more complex than that. Equality is not the same as egalitarianism. We maintain at Harbin's Community Baptist Church that men and women are ontologically equal yet distinct and designed to complement one another. So the next way that marriage images God is through complementarity. Okay, the next way that marriage images God is through the fact that we complement one another. As much as Genesis 1 shows that man and women are created equal in the image of God, that magnifying glass that we put over Genesis 1, 26 and 27, which we call Genesis 2, shows us very clearly that there is complementarianism and there is distinction. Verse 18. I will make him, this is God speaking, I will make him a helper fit for him. Fit means, it could also be translated, corresponding to him. Uh, I like the Holman Christian Standard Bible's translation because it's exactly what it means. They translate it, instead of saying a helper fit for him, they said a helper as his complement. Someone to fit Adam. Someone to complete him, you Jerry Maguire fans. All right? You, you know the line. Come on. You've watched the movie. Someone to finish him, someone to complete him, someone to complement him. University of Chicago ethicist Leon Cass wrote this recently. He's actually writing a book about sexual relationships, but this is what he talked about. He said, we discover on our own, well, we've discovered that on our own, we have a permanent incompleteness and lack of wholeness. Both without and within, we have a need for and are dependent upon a complementary yet different other, even to realize or satisfy our bodily nature. So this is, guy, this is a guy, he's a total Darwinian, evolutionist, and he says, what we've discovered, what a discovery, hello, what we've discovered is that by ourselves, we lack something, we lack wholeness. And we need someone, to, we need a complementary other, is the way he put it. We need a complementary other. Well, he didn't have to discover this. God has proclaimed it from the very beginning. Man and women are designed to complement one another, not to duplicate one another. God didn't create twins. He didn't just create another Adam. Okay, if Adam were lonely, maybe that would have been sufficient. But Adam needed someone to complement him, and therefore God created a woman. Now let's look at this text again, because it brings up some questions. So I'm going to read from verse 18 again. And I just kind of want to stop and think through some things. It says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Okay, good. We've read that verse a few times now. Then in verse 19, you would think that what's going to happen next is the whole Adam with the rib thingy, right? And that he's going to make the woman. But he doesn't. Instead, we read in verse 19, Now out of the ground the Lord had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to man to see what he would call them. 
And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and all birds of the heavens and every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So why didn't God create Eve right after verse 18? Have you ever wondered that? It just seems strange to me when I read that story and, and Eve's not like right there then. Well, I think first of all, I think there's several reasons. First, God wanted to demonstrate Adam's need for a woman. He wanted to demonstrate Adam's need for a helper. He wanted to demonstrate, he wanted Adam to know that he needed a helper. He wanted to show that man needs woman. Adam was completing part of the creation mandate. What is the creation mandate from Genesis 1? The creation mandate is to subdue the earth. He's doing that. He's naming the animals, which means he's having uh, authority over the animals when he names them. He's naming the animals, but he's going to have a hard time being fruitful and multiplying. Subdue the earth and be fruitful and multiply. The creation mandate for mankind cannot be completed without the woman. Man cannot fully image God the creator without the woman. We cannot fully image God if we do not have that complementary relationship between men and women. God would bring one into his life that he was not to subdue, but one he was to do what? That was to do what? Was to be his helper. I will make him, the Bible says, a helper. This is how woman compliments man. She helps him carry out the creation mandate to subdue the earth and to be fruitful and multiply. She is not subdued by Adam, nor is he to exercise dominion over her the way he exercises dominion over the animals. He is to work alongside her, but she is created for him. According to 1 Corinthians 11, it says this, For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. She is his crown. She is, has a beautiful role. He does not fully glorify God without her, and she does not fully glorify God without him. It's actually a very beautiful thing. Now let me say a word here about singleness. There may be some here who are single. All right? I'm not looking over there, Mark. <laughs> I've made that mistake in the past. A word about singleness real quick here. I believe that God's normal design for men and women is to find, is to have that complementary partner, spouse. Men, it's to be a woman. Woman, it is to be a man. But there are cases where people are single for life. And the scripture tells us that that in and of itself is a supernatural gift from God. Jesus talks about it. Paul talks about it. It's not the normal thing. If you are called to be single in life, as Paul was, as Jesus was, then it is a supernatural gift from God. But the normal role for men and women is to find that marriage partnership. That's why those statistics I said earlier are shocking to me. When only less than half of Americans are getting married. Because it tells me that less than half of Americans, well, probably a lot less than that, are imaging God the right way. They're not complete and not having that complementary relationship that they're designed to have. And also, this whole passage about it's not good for man to be alone, I think the principles of it go beyond marriage as well. Because I think that single people are called still into community. And it's still not good for them to be alone. And they are called into a people. They are called into a family. They are called into a brotherhood and a sisterhood. They are called into the Jesus tribe. So there is perfect complementation in the Godhead. God the Father would not be God without the Son and without the Holy Spirit. The Trinity is perfect. A holy expression of complementarianism. And we see it displayed and played out in the distinct roles that God gives men and women. Which brings me to my next point. How does marriage image God? Through distinction. Not only do they complement one another, they're distinct from one another. Men and women are equal, but they are not the same. They are equal, but they remain distinct and unique in their own ways. They have differing roles, roles established in Genesis 2. I think we know that in our heart. I think every single child 
knows that. When they grow up, they know there is distinction between men and women. Even if they don't follow the traditional roles, maybe the girl doesn't play with the Barbie dolls as much as she would. Maybe she likes sports or whatever. That's okay, but she knows and he knows that there is distinction between men and women. Genesis 2 establishes that distinction. It's sort of like this. I was trying to think of an illustration to demonstrate distinction for the children here this morning. Because we are a church where generations converge to enjoy God and change the world. I try to involve the kids. Okay? So, let's see here. I've got some money. Let's see if i got any volunteers now. For money. All right. Let's see here. Well, you know what? Tell you what. Uh, come on up here, Micah. Micah drew me this wonderful picture this morning. If you want to be used in an illustration, bring me a picture. All right. All right. Micah, which would you rather have? You want this dollar or you want these four quarters? Which one do you want? The dollar? Why do you want the dollar? I don't know. Okay. Is there any difference between these two? No. No. So of value, they are absolutely the same, right? This dollar is of the same value as these four quarters, but it's not exactly the same thing. This is a piece of paper with um, uh, George Washington on it, and uh, these are four pieces of metal with George Washington on them, all right? And so they are different. They are distinct. Matter of fact, you may go up to, not today's vending machines, but when I was a kid, they didn't take these. And you may go up to an old vending machine and not be able to use one of these because they can only use these over here. It's the same value, but there's a role that these can play that, these, that this cannot play, and vice versa. So that was the way I was kind of thinking about it this morning to help us understand, children, that men and women are created equal, yet God has created them with distinct and different roles that complement one another. And for coming up here, I'll let you have whichever one you want. That one. All right, take it and have a seat, all right? Don't misunderstand us when we talk about complementarity and distinction don't 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 read into that a lack of equality i want you to understand that that is a caricature of the position that conservative christian evangelicals take on this passage it's not the truth okay so there's two words really here that sum up the distinction two words number one headship number two helper those are the two roles, roles, those are the two distinctions I want us to see in this passage. Headship is the role of the man. Helper is the role of the woman. So now we start to offend the sensibilities of our modern Western minds. The distinction of roles, however, has only come into attack within the last century. At least in America, at least in the Western culture. Now Satan's been attacking it since Genesis chapter 3. Demer will get to that next week. Satan's been attacking roles since Genesis 3. But it's only been recently that our society in general, Western society, has caved to, the distinct, to this attack on distinction. Let's look a little bit at the headship of man. First of all, man was created first. We read about his creation in verse 7. We didn't read that in what Demer read earlier, but man was created first in verse 7. Man is given a word from God. He's given the role of naming the animals. Therefore, he's given leadership. When is this role of, 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 of having authority over the animals, when is it given to man? It's given to him before woman is created. Man is given the moral responsibility. There's a command given in, chapter, in verses 15 and 16. You know the command. He's not to, he can have anything he wants to eat in the garden, but he cannot eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that is found in the middle of the garden. That moral command is given to man before woman is created. Therefore, you can only understand that to mean that man has been given these responsibilities, moral responsibilities, leadership responsibilities over the home as part of his creation mandate. After Adam establishes that after she's been created, he establishes that she is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She's equal he then demonstrates his headship over her by naming her. He's not saying she's less equal. Matter of fact, he's already said, he's, these are the first words he's ever said. He is pumped. He said, Woo, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. Woo! You're a woman because she came from man. 
That coming from man is also to signify the man's headship. Man is therefore responsible for the decisions and the direction of the home. He does not make these decisions alone, but in consultation, in conjunction with his wife, his helper, he makes the decision and he is the one ultimately responsible. One Christian leader said this, A Christian man is obligated to lead his family to the best of his ability. If his family has purchased too many items on credit, then the financial crunch is ultimately his fault. If the family never reads the Bible or seldom goes to church on Sundays, God holds him to blame. If the children are disrespectful and disobedient, the primary responsibility lies with the father, not his wife. America's greatest need is for husbands to begin guiding their families rather than pouring every physical and emotional resource into the mere acquisition of money. I believe that. And men, it should make you shudder to know at the judgment seat of Christ where the ways you failed. He's not going to hold your wife responsible. He's going to hold you. And if you are in Christ and you are in the Jesus tribe, those sins have been forgiven. They have been paid for. Yet you are still on this journey of holiness. And you should be seeking to be honoring God by leading in all these areas in your home. That's the role of men, headship. And the role of woman is helper. She is to assist. She is to help. She is to encourage, strengthen, and affirm man in his role as the leader. This is beautiful. Don't think this is ugly. The world wants you to think this is ugly. It's not. Satan takes what is beautiful and tries to convince you that it's horrible. The reason you may question its beauty is because sin entered the world. Deemer will talk about this next week. And the roles have been attacked and confused and warped so that man has abdicated his role as head and woman has rejected her role as helper. Sin causes us to hate our roles. Sin causes us to hate our roles. But these roles were established before the fall. There are some Christian leaders out there that will say, well, male headship and and woman submission, that is actually a result of the fall. After the fall, those things happen. Therefore, they should be, we should seek to eliminate those things. But that's not the case. The world is perfect at this point, and God has established the roles. This is beautiful. Not only do women play a distinct role as helper in man's headship, they also play a very vital role, as I mentioned earlier, in the creation mandate. For only the woman, the woman has the distinction of being the one, the one that can bear children. What a glorious and beautiful distinction for women. The world attacks this. Radical feminization of our culture hates this distinction. It's the root of a lot of problems, to be honest with you. It's the root of abortion. Abortion is very closely tied to radical feminism. Now, I want to be... I want to create a distinction right now. When, if you're talking about feminism and you're talking about equal rights for women to vote, equal pay for equal work, you're talking about women having equal rights, human civil rights, we're all for that. Of course, that's part of men and women being created equal. But I'm talking about a radical feminism that seeks to destroy the distinction, destroy the complementarity, destroy the line between men and women and say that there is no distinction. It's the root of abortion because woman doesn't want the creation mandate to be fruitful and multiply. I said sin makes us hate our roles. And she wants to reject it and she wants to have the same right man has over his body because man's not in that situation. You can go back and look at Margaret Singer's writings on this, and that is the root of it. It's the desire for women to be just like men. It's also the root of homosexuality, for there's no distinction. If there's no distinction between man and woman, there's no need to have man need woman or woman need man. There's no need for that if there's no distinction. If you throw Genesis 2 out, and I'm glad Deemer said this is history, because if you think it's allegory that you can just say, meh, I'll take it, I'll leave it, whatever. If you throw Genesis 2 out, like a lot of people have, you open the door to a lot of problems. Here's Margaret Sanger. 
She says this, Only in recent years has woman's position as the gentler and weaker half of the human family been emphatically and generally questioned and rejected. Men assumed that this was woman's place. Woman herself accepted it. It seldom occurred to anyone to ask whether she would go on occupying it forever, accepting her role as, quote, the weaker and gentler half. She accepted that function. In turn, the acceptance of that function fixed the more firmly her rank as an inferior. Stop right there. That's not what the Bible teaches. It does not teach women are inferior. Let's go on. Caught in this vicious circle, woman has, through her reproductive ability, founded and perpetrated, perpetrated the tyrannies of the earth. Whether it was the tyranny of monarchy, or oligarchy, or a republic, the one indispensable factor of its existence was and is now hordes of human beings, human beings so plentiful as to be cheap and so cheap that ignorance was their natural lot. This woman hates humanity. She hates distinction of roles. Upon the rock of an unenlightened, submissive maternity, these have been founded upon the product. I'm sorry. Upon such an unenlightened, submissive maternity have these been founded. And upon the product of such a maternity have they been flourishing. Another secular writer that I found this week wrote this. He said that all the ills of the world, the tyrannies of the earth, as Margaret Sanger would say, are blamed on the traditional roles of men and women. And because of these traditional roles of men and women, male domination has brutalized and denigrated women for centuries. Brutalized and denigrated women for centuries. Now I want you to think about something. They're saying that what's been the norm for centuries has brutalized and denigrated women. Over Since the rise of radical feminism, you can see a direct parallel with the increase of perversity, exploitation of women, sex crimes, confusion of gender roles, and anger towards women in general. Sex crimes, rape, has gone up since radical feminism took over. Wait a second. I thought radical feminism was supposed to get rid of the tyrannies of the world. You see, it does the opposite. The world has caused us to think upside down. If we get rid of the distinction, we get rid of the complementarity, we get rid of the roles, we open the door for brutalization of women, not the respect and treatment of women as they should be treated, as our equals under God, our helps. Radical feminization has done the opposite of what it claims to have done. When God designed marriage, he designed a beautiful design for men and women and our modern society has trashed it do you see why this is important do you see why last week was important if we don't tether all our human relationships to the relational nature of god we have no foundation you see within the godhead there is submission there is headship the son and the holy spirit submit to the father the holy spirit submits to the son and the father There are roles, there are distinction, there is submission, there is leadership, there's headship. And what does Jesus call the Holy Spirit? Helper. There's headship, there's help, there's perfect unity in the Godhead. I think one of the reasons that headship and submission are feared or hated is that it's often been poorly carried out by men who instead of lovingly leading their homes with Christ-like service, they dominate their home. They end up treating Eve like the animals. They treat her as inferior and to be ruled instead of led. Ruling your home is not the same thing as leading your home, men. If you have to tell your wife to submit, you are not leading. Because women will gladly follow good biblical leadership. My pastor in Arkansas once he went into a home and he answered the door and the kids were going crazy. And he asked us, the, the, the person at the home he's going to ask his wife to come down and do something. And she's, she said, I can't right now. And he said, woman, submit to me. Get down here. And my pastor looked at him and said, that's not biblical submission. That is dominion. That is rule. That is treating Your wife as someone that is meant to be domineered and smothered. That's not true leadership. The head, 
respects the helper as equal before God and serves her with his life. Or else he isn't really acting like the head. Let me say that again. The head respects the helper as equal before God and serves her with his life. Or else he isn't really acting like the head. How should it work? In the home, you work together to come to decisions and you pray together and you seek God together. But under the leadership and the guidance and the initiation of man, decisions are made. That's how it should work. It's not some sort of authoritarian smothering and domineering of men over women. And these roles are carried into the family of God as well, the church. And we'll get to that in a later sermon. Adam didn't view Eve as an animal to be ruled, but as a partner to be loved, to be united to. Which brings me to my next point. Marriage images God through oneness. God in three persons, but one God. Deuteronomy 6.4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Trinity, tri-unity. And although men and women cannot perfectly image this in the same depth and profundity that it is in the Godhead, there's still a mysterious and glorious oneness, unity that is created when marriage happens. Genesis 2.24, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. They came from one, woman came from man, and now they come back in union as one. This refers more to just just the physical act of consummating a marriage. It refers to soul unity, spiritual convergence, a bond that is never to be broken. That's why God hates divorce. Why does God hate divorce? Does he hate it because it messes up homes? Yes. But he hates it more because it destroys the imaging we're supposed to do of God. We have to image of oneness that can't be broken. That's how we image the Father. That's how we image God. And divorce rips that image apart. Jesus said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? Jesus quoting Moses. Jesus treats it like history, by the way. Verse 6, So they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God joined together, let no man separate. There is to be an intimate oneness that is totally transparent, totally shameless. It says in verse 25, And the man and his wife are both naked and were not ashamed. Read that passage when I'm home with the kids. We get to that part and they all start giggling. (laughs) Because we've lost some of that when sin entered the world. Blame entered, shame entered, and death entered. But here in the beginning, before the fall, there was a perfect Unity, transparency, transparency, shamelessness. It was not until sin entered the world that shame also entered the world. Finally, how does marriage image God? Verse 5, through covenant. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. Hold fast to cleave to, to commit to, to be bonded to, to covenant with. Marriage is ultimately a great and glorious covenant between a man and a woman. This covenant is sealed when the two become one flesh. And this images God as well. It's a glorious and mysterious thing. Paul thought so. How does this image God? Well, I'm going to read for you here in a second Ephesians chapter 5, starting in verse 22, if you want to turn there. How does covenant image God? Because as Deemer will talk about next week, sin entered the world. We began to hate our roles, yet the roles still remained. Matter of fact, creation mandate still remained as well. But dominion becomes harder. Animals are no longer submissive. The ground no longer gives the fruit it once did. Childbearing now is painful. The, The creation mandate remains. The roles remain. But it's hard, and it's difficult, and it's warped. And therefore... In Genesis chapter 3, which I'm sure Demer will talk about next week, the promise is already given that God will send one, a seed of the woman who will come and crush the head of the serpent. He will send one, one who will come and be with you in a perfect covenant. And until that point, as people look forward to that day, God enters into covenant after covenant with his people. But there's a new covenant that comes. A covenant that God not only makes with his people, that he keeps with his people. The new covenant that we have through Jesus Christ. A covenant bought with his blood, paid for by his blood. 
And it's a mysterious thing. But marriage, even before Christ came, marriage was to image that. That covenant. Ephesians 5.22 Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is, itself, it's, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. If you're wondering who has the bigger role, difficulty there, men have been given a whole lot more responsibility there to love their wives as Christ loved the church. And gave himself up for her, that, she might, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present to the church, the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle, or any such thing, so that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Hey, Paul viewed it as history too. Verse 32, here it is. This mystery is profound. Now, what's he, what mystery is he talking about? Marriage? That, that's a mystery too. I've been in it 15 years. I'm still trying to figure out a lot of the mysteries. But what mystery is he talking about? This mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Marriage ultimately isn't about us. It's not about our needs, our wants, our desires. It's not about soulmates. Marriage is ultimately about the gospel and about Jesus. That's what it points to. It's ultimately about the covenant between Christ and his church, the bride of Christ. That's what marriage is to image. Next week we'll see in the fall that man needs a savior. And Christ comes and is promised to come and restore men to God and to create for himself a Jesus tribe who is also his bride. The church becomes his bride and in the end, one day, human marriage will fade away and give way to the wedding feast of the Lamb, Jesus Christ. There'll be no more husbands and wives. We'll all be part of the Jesus tribe given by the Father to the Son for all eternity. The dowry was paid for by the very blood of the groom, Jesus Christ himself on Calvary. And Christ cannot leave his church. He cannot divorce his church. Divorce will be gone as well. You see, this is one family portrait. This is one book, the Bible. This is one Jesus tribe. Marriage was created before the foundation of the world in the eyes of God because before the foundation of the world, the Bible says that the lamb was slain. So if Jesus was slain before the foundation of the world, then the bride was already in mind before the foundation of the world. Therefore, just like the father and son roles existed in eternity before God didn't just give us those names so we could try to understand him better. No, God was father, God was son before fathers and sons ever came into existence in humanity. So too, marriage existed before it ever came into existence in humanity. Therefore, don't think that Jesus is talking about the church being his bride and him being the groom so that we can try to go, oh, I get it a little bit more now because I know my wife and I know how we act. No, he's telling you that he's the groom and the church is the bride so you can look at him and the church and his covenant with the church and say that's how I've got to be in my home that's why it's created don't flip it upside down don't flip it upside down and the angel said to me Revelation 19.9 blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb and he said to me these are true words of God just as true as Revelation 19.9 is, so too Genesis 1 and 2 are true words of God. Reject them at your own peril. They are of eternal significance. Time magazine may conclude that marriage is no longer needed, but God disagrees. It's for his good, it's for our good and for his glory. Marriage was designed by God for God. He created it, he designed it, he gave away the first bride. It's for his glory. So husbands, be heads of your homes for the glory of God. 
Wives, be helpers in your homes for the glory of God. Marriage glorifies God by imaging God and the gospel to a lost world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, as we come to you now, and we think about these things, Father, just in preparing this message, I was so convicted. I was so convicted of how poorly I live out my role as the head in my home. How poorly I lead my family, how poorly I protect my family. And so God, I pray, Lord, that I would look to you, look to your nature, look to your perfection, look to your glory, look to Jesus, and learn how to be the head that you've designed me to be. Lord, I pray for all the wives in here, Lord, that they too might look to the Scriptures, Lord, and look to the complementarity of the Godhead, and look at the roles and distinctions, and don't view their role as helper as something to be discarded or disliked or something ugly, but help them to see it's beautiful. They are the crown. They're the crown on the head of man. It's a beautiful thing. So God, there are some in here that aren't married, they're single. Maybe they're single again, maybe they've never been married. And God, I pray for them, Lord, that you'd help them to live out their lives also in community. That they might see that this beautiful design of marriage is, is also for them to understand and for them to embrace and for them to look at perhaps as they may get married again one day or get married for the first time. But even if you've called them to that supernatural gift of singleness, God, you've called them to be part of a family. And you have called them to a marriage. It's the marriage supper of the Lamb. You've called them to be the bride of Christ. So God, now as we close with the song, we sing this to you, a song written by a member of our church here, God. We just praise you for the many things you're doing. You're working in Harbin's. We ask your forgiveness of our sins and help us, God, to be who you've created us to be this week. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.